0: spirit of design delves deep into the unseen elements of design and holistic sustainability.
1: Join us, Amy and Anya, for open conversations with creatives, scholars, activists, and others to envision alternative design futures that are diverse, inclusive, community-centric, and in symbiosis with all life on this planet.
0: Excited to be facilitating and interviewing Amy today on our podcast. Um, Amy is the co-creator with me with this podcast and sustainability 5.0, and it's such an honor to be interviewing you today, Amy. So thank you for sharing your knowledge and perspective with us um around diversifying sustainability perspectives. Well, thanks for hosting me today. All right, let's get into it. Perhaps, Amy, you could begin by introducing a little bit about yourself and your practice. Sure. So if you haven't already listened to
1: our very first
0: intro, um,
1: I'll just give you a bit of a a more in-depth account, I guess, of where I'm coming from and my practice. But I was born in New Zealand. I know it's sometimes hard to tell because I have an American accent. I'm Kiwi by birth. My mom is um, European Kiwi. My dad is Maori Kiwi. Um, So I was born in New Zealand, but we only lived here till I was two. And at two years old, we moved to the States, um, to Minnesota. And I grew up there for the next four years while my parents studied. And then when I was six, we moved to a country called Tajikistan in Central Asia. And that's where I spent most of my foundational years as a child in my early teenage years. And my parents uh, were working in Tajikistan doing humanitarian aid work. When we moved there in 93, 94, it was right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And Tajikistan was kind of erupting into this civil war. And so I really grew up with this in this kind of crazy in-between world where Russia had just left and everything was erupting into chaos. I mean, when we first got there, I remember standing in line for hours just to get a loaf of bread, and it was in absolute poverty in every sense of the world, spiritual poverty, um, resource poverty, I mean, and and hopelessness. People were really feeling hopeless at that time. No one was getting paid. It was just – it was crazy. So this kind of – um. I guess that time in Tajikistan growing up, and as I grew up there, because we lived there for quite a while, you know, things got better, the civil war ended. And now if you were to go to Tajikistan, your experience would be completely different from what it was at that time. But I think Tajikistan really gave me so much perspective. It really guides me today still in the way I view the world. And I guess, kind of the the things that I'm passionate about and the things that I love. I really think that I came out of the womb a feminist, um, in in the true sense of the word, but Tajikistan definitely solidified that for me um, and really, I guess, kind of ignited my passion. I hate that word, but passion for human rights and... um, Yeah, it was really it was funny looking back now because growing up in Tajikistan, we grew up among the cotton fields. Cotton was such a huge export for Tajikistan and there was the cotton fields and the silkworms. And I remember going and visiting them when I was really young and that was part of my education. And even when I was young, I remember designing clothes. But the idea of fashion was just so off the radar. I mean, we didn't even have TV, hardly ever had (laughs) electricity or running water. So that wasn't even on the radar at that time. But looking back now, I can kind of see how it's led me to this point where I am today. Anyways, we moved back to New Zealand when I was 14. And that time was really chaotic for me. I think just trying to figure out where I stand and where I belong. um, And just really being very confused for quite a long time. Also trying to reconcile having grown up in and watching extreme poverty and you know, a lot of violence around, and not understanding how to fit into life as a teenager in kind of a more Western world. Um, so that was interesting. Uh, I moved out of home at seventeen. I decided I quit school actually at 15. I was like, nah, that's it. Not doing school. This is a waste of my time. (laughs) I moved out of home at 17. And then I went traveling. I went back to Tajikistan a few times. I worked there. I taught English. I worked in orphanages. And that time for me was really finding myself. I was really learning to just, I was just really figuring out who I was, um, and where my place in the world was. And so I came back to New Zealand, um, and when I went into study, I was probably about twenty-one when I started studying. I initially started studying in politics um, with the aim to go into human rights, which is funny because Anya, like you said, that you, you um, started in law, wanting to go into human rights. So <laughs> we had really similar um, backgrounds in that sense. Uh, and I really quickly realized that I hated it. I hate. I hated studying politics. Um, I just it just did not work for me. Um, there is no room for creativity. It was just really rigid and I hated it. It wasn't for me. So I, on a whim, really, it really was on a whim because I think I applied a week or two weeks before the semester started, I applied to go into fashion design and surprisingly got in. And kind of went into fashion knowing that it was politically creative. And so that really informed the way I approached study. And that, I think, I think going, I think studying fashion, what it did for me was I was really lucky to have a professor called Kim Fraser, who was really passionate about sustainability. It was, there was very few people talking about it at that time, but Kim was really passionate about it. And so for me going into fashion design and having her as a lecturer and, um, having her just do, I mean, there were really basic intros, but they gave me permission to kind of go deeper myself and, um, research and explore a bit more into what was happening myself. And what happened was that it connected all the dots for me. So even looking back now, Perhaps not in ways that I realized at the time, but even looking back now, I was so fascinated at this intersection of sustainability, culture, and design. And I remember doing my graduate collection on um, Afghan heritage pieces and kind of how they would pass down from father to son and they would be kept for generations. And I was I was just so fascinated by this idea of sustainability being such a natural thing within certain cultures. And and yeah looking back now, I can kind of see how I came to this point where I am today. But yeah, I came out of uni, uh, did various roles in industry, but kind of decided that I didn't want to participate because it was just so fucked up. And I I just didn't want to participate in anything that didn't align with my values. So I did a bunch of other things. And then I ended up founding the CoLab Nation, which was an online retail space that curated um, different sustainable and ethical labels, however you want to <laughs> however you want to define that, and that was really cool because at that time it was really hard to find as a consumer it was really hard to find brands that were um, quote unquote sustainable and ethical, so I started putting them together um, and love that, loved the connections I made, love the things that I learned, loved the exploration that I did in that time that took me beyond what I call as the 12 step program, which is kind of that um, prescribed recycle, reduce, you kind of way approach to sustainability um, and all of that. So I, I started researching deeper into that and came to the point where I really was like, I, I still, even though I know that you know, I love these brands. I believe in these brands. I, you know, love what they're doing. I I still feel like I'm, I don't want to participate in selling someone something that they don't necessarily need, even if it is quote unquote, sustainable and ethical. And so I had this kind of crisis of, I guess, values for me and decided that I really wanted to go more into looking more at the root causes of the problems that we face Um, in fashion and beyond when it comes to sustainability. And so I stepped away from that and really through um, through some kind of, I don't know, miracles of the universe, Anya and I were connected through a mutual friend at a time in my life when I had really been diving in and developing my own ideas and explorations into what sustainability really is from my perspective and um what's missing and what are the root causes. And at that time you Anya had also been doing that exploration. And so from there we founded Sustainability 5.0 and now the podcast. And yeah, it's just been a I guess it's a, a culmination of a lifetime of different events. And uh, also reconnecting with my indigenous heritage has been a huge uh puzzle piece in developing a deeper understanding of what sustainability looks like outside the current accepted kind of dominant western viewpoint of what it is. So, yeah. It's a very long-winded
0: <laughs> answer to your question. Oh, that's beautiful. No, thank you so much for sharing all that with us and um yeah, there's definitely, like you said, a lot of synergies between our backgrounds and it's quite kismic how Um, we were brought together and I love, I love that. Um, So I know that you've just submitted an article for the Lissom's first print edition and um, within the article, you quote that just as ecosystems require diversity to thrive, fashion ecosystems also require diversity to thrive, diversity of values, approaches, cultural representations, and solutions. Do you think you could tell us a little bit about what you mean by this idea around diversity in sustainability and why it's particularly important for this current sustainable movement?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that quote that I I wrote there, I mean, that was me connecting dots, but really it was informed by a lot of the work um, that Vine Deloria and Daniel Wildcat have done. Um, And they speak often about how both cultural culture and ecosystems shape each other um, in this kind of nature culture nexus. And it was through their work that really informed my deeper understanding of kind of what's missing in fashion and how important it is to have cultural diversity and value system diversity and how that's really missing. And, and, you know, you can look at there's a there's research out there that actually ties the co-occurrence of linguistic diversity and biological diversity with each other. So it's not like it's something that y- you know we're making up. <laughs> it's actually you you can find the research on it. There is a tie between cultural or at least in that sense linguistic diversity and the the biodiversity that's that's allowed to thrive within certain ecosystems. So for me when I was putting these puzzle pieces together, what it looks like is that, you know, when we're, we're looking at our, our current system, there's an incredible lack of diversity. So what's necessary from my perspective is that we take the conversation of diversity beyond simply being a diversity on the runway and print media, which is thankfully something that we're really talking about now. We're talking about the importance of diversity, of body types, of you know, sexual orientations, of um, ethnic backgrounds, and and the importance of diversity in runway and print, but we have yet to really kind of embrace a value diversity and a cultural diversity when it comes to the approach we take to sustainability and and solutions that we, you know, kind of apply to this space. So for me, when we talk about diversity, it also needs to be we also need to be talking about cultural diversity. Because with cultural diversity become comes a far more holistic approach to sustainability. Because it's it's no longer just simply a linear, this is the way we do it, this is a singular way everyone should be doing it, but it's adapted to its locality. So I think it's really important that we take on a a local perspective as well as a global perspective, but localism in the sense of knowing what's available in our area, the needs that are present, the plant species that mother nature has given us permission to work with. And it's that kind of cultural diversity that allows for us to have a broader, more holistic approach to sustainability. And I really feel like it's, it's starting to happen. Those conversations are starting to happen and more and more, People are being invited to the table, but it's still yet to happen in a mainstream kind of meaningful way when it comes to sustainability, I feel.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's uh, some really good, important points there. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Like we're completely lacking in that diversity that moves beyond, I guess, appearance and um you know, just the, I guess the obvious things that we've been looking at, like s- uh, sexual orientation and, and things like that. It's um the diversity in values. And I love how you speak in the diversity of linguistics and biological diversity and how that's really an imperative piece. What do you think, like you know, if we continue with with business as usual, you know, because we see there is a lot of sustainability initiatives coming up in fashion, in design and, you know, in, in the world in general, but we are still not meeting our, you know, our Paris Agreement targets. We're still not um, actually minimizing um, the waste and the toxicity and pollution and the uh, the emissions that we're creating. So... What do you think um, would happen or could happen if we continue this business as usual? Um, you know, what happens when we lack this environmental, as well as value, and even linguistic diversity within this sustainability movement toward the future and the world that we all want to see?
1: Mm, I think we can kind of look at what's happening right now for an indication of what's going to happen if we continue with business as usual. I do think there are a lot of brands and um, individuals within fashion that are deeply committed to, you know, creating a more sustainable future. But there are also brands that are using sustainability and kind of this uh, demand by consumers or, um, you know, customers for a more sustainable approach, more ethical approach. And and they're using that as a way to market um, and a way to continue business as usual. And, and in that, in that sense, sustainability then becomes the new frontier. It just becomes a new frontier that brands are trying to, you know, conquer and they're trying to fit these sustainability, you know, solutions and all within the same systems and the same markers of success that they currently have. So we can apply all the technical solutions presently available, but if we don't have a cultural value and systemic shift, we continue to apply these solutions within the current markers of success, and that looks like H&M. It looks like all of these big brands that are trying to you know, kind of be more sustainable in their practices. And I'm not trying to disregard anything that they are doing that is positive. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge any positive steps that are taken. But when we continue to try to, when we try to fit these quote unquote solutions within the current markers of success, and we don't rethink the system, we don't rethink uh, the cultural values and the, and the um, you know, value systems that are present, then we still are trying to fit it in, um, systems that value scalability and optimization and, you know, profit. And, and, and it's just not possible to continue business as usual and not rethink those systems. At least I don't, I don't believe. And, and the other thing is that there is, so there's a practical, I don't know if that's practical. There's an, there's an ecological cost to business as usual, but there's also a emotional, cultural, and spiritual cost to the lack of diversity if we continue business as usual. Because there's entire people groups who are being passed by for the dominant culture's definitions of success and progress. There are entire people groups with so much rich history and knowledge of how to live in harmony with the earth, how to you know, how to create beautiful things without, you know, removing from the earth beyond, you know, what's possible for regeneration. And, and we're passing by those cultures and those systems of knowledge for the dominant kind of accepted Western way of doing things, which is incredibly linear most of the time. So I think if we continue with this worldview that sees nature as resources, even when we see nature as resources we can apply it within things like circularity but it will still continue to lead us down this track of environmental and cultural decimation and i think what needs to happen is that we need to really reevaluate those values we really need to reevaluate how we do business now and and just i think for a lot of a lot of brands and um a lot of designers it's just looking at like what have we accepted as business as usual? what we, have we accepted as the quote unquote norm the the normal way of doing things because i I think that's a huge part of the problem is that we're we're told this is the way things are done. These are the markers of success. This is the way we should define progress and and is not really leading us down a a track that has a long and prosperous
0: Path to head down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's some important, important po- points there to consider. And I love how you bring up that, you know, we actually within each of us need to really reevaluate these value systems that have gotten us to this place because we all are a part of it. Or, you know, those of that there are a lot of us that are actually, um, Um, we actually gain a lot from these oppressive systems. (laughs) We're privileged from these systems. And, um, I don't know what you think about this, but I, you know, I feel we, we actually need, we need to admit that and, um, see where, you know, you know, as interconnected beings, where, where is our part in these systems and how can we reimagine new, new trajectories going forward, um.
1: Absolutely. I, I think you're so right on that, that we benefit from these systems. And it is so important to acknowledge that both as as consumers or customers, as well as brands and designers, we're benefiting from these systems. And if we don't acknowledge that, we will continue to perpetuate the cycle. and And I think it takes you know, you've spoken about this before, it takes a degree of self-awareness and taking a deep breath and actually spending time to look at that in order for us to acknowledge and dismantle those systems. Because like you said, so many of us, most of us are benefiting from these systems, these systems that are not only decimating the earth, but are also, you know, taking from people who you know, are forced into these supply chains and into roles that don't offer them a future of of um, stability or even just, a, you know, a sustainable future in terms of their family and how they can provide. And I think it's, yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. It's so important to acknowledge that. Mm, yeah. And
0: it's, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> No, Um, it's
1: not. And also, I think a lot of the time I've seen, I've seen this so many times, and I'm sure you have too, where brands will say, you know, I just can't do that right now, because I just can't, you know, we can't afford to make all of those changes now, or it's a process. And, you know, when we get to a certain point, then we will, you know, make our supply chain more sustainable and ethical, or, you know, that's a goal for the future. And I understand, absolutely understand that it is a process but at the same time i feel like we've accepted that way too much we've we've just been like okay it's a process and uh, and there's so little accountability and there's so little responsibility for the fact that if that's the process maybe you should just stop for a while you know, maybe that's, maybe that's the conversation we should be having now. If that's the process, perhaps you just need to stop until there's an alternative. Because is it acceptable to, to use people in the way that we do to put people under the stresses that they are in supply chains to put the the natural world under the stresses that it is? Uh, because we can't afford better choices right now. Is that is that really okay? Are we really okay with that? And I think. I think that's a question we genuinely need to ask ourselves because if we were for the especially for brands and um designers and creatives who are committed to sustainability I think stopping for a minute and asking ourselves that question and truly truly being willing to give an honest answer is going to give us a little bit of insight into actually where do our values where are our values in alignment out of alignment what needs to change here? What needs to be different here? Because if we're saying that we value sustainability and we value people, then we should value them. Now, not in the future, not not for a later time, but right now.
0: Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. At this day and age with everything that's happening in the world, it really is unacceptable in a way to be making these incremental and tiny changes if you're in a position to do more um it reminds me of this um of what danella meadows the systems um theorist and environmentalist writes around paradigm shifts and how as a whole in a culture or society a paradigm shift will will take a lot of time but but on an individual level a paradigm shift can happen in an instant Mm, yes, that's so good. Yeah, so it's, perhaps it's about each of us, you know, coming into that on our own and then working to, to the outer.
1: Absolutely, and I think there's a lot to be said about that kind of personal responsibility. And yeah, they tote personal responsibility a lot within this movement, but genuinely, there's a lot to be said for personal responsibility because there's so much we can't do. There is so much we have no control over, but as creatives, as designers, as people who are working within this space, we have responsibility and we have the ability to be responsible for our own actions. Uh, and that does have an effect. It it really does. So yeah, I think that that personal responsibility is super important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess those points are Leading into my next question for you, which is around decolonization. So I absolutely loved the article that you wrote for Medium a little while ago. We'll put the links to it in the show notes, um, which was focused around decolonization of the fashion space. And um, in your writing, you present kind of this frustration because of the majority of the sustainability um, and ethical um, actions within the fashion industry um, that are predominantly based on like this Eurocentric Western response to a colonial system. Particularly you write, I'll quote you here, without decolonization of the industry, sustainability is simply the newest frontier waiting to be conquered by brands in their commitment to ensuring the continued comfort and progress of their Western kingdoms. Ooh, this statement really moved me and it really had me questioning um, my own practices and values within this sustainability space. Um, so I guess I'd like to ask you, what does decolonization of the fashion industry and the design field at large look like to you and how do you envision this going forward and, and why is it important?
1: Hmm. That's such a big question, eh? Um, It's funny because my dad said to me, why did you use the word decolonization? Why did you use the word colonialism? Uh, And I was like, because it it triggers people. It makes you really stop and think because, first of all, it's true. Uh, But second of all, using that word intentionally makes us stop and think about the systems that we're participating in. And and the fashion industry, industry really is founded upon Colonialism, uh, and we still very much operate within those those value systems. Uh, and you can find that in data. It's not it's not an opinion. It's it's actually you can find it in data that the same trade routes of um, colonialism prior to I mean, hundreds of years ago are the same routes that we're using for fashion today. I think, yeah. For me, it was that frustration over just feeling like we're we're kind of missing the point we're we're kind of not really getting the bigger picture here and and um you know you and i have spoken about this so much it's 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 really comes down to systemic change and so i think that was my frustration that i was sharing there and i felt like like i said before that i was seeing a lot of brands when when you have perspective and when you kind of look at the bigger picture I felt like I was seeing a lot of brands who are using sustainability simply as the newest frontier, Um, the newest, uh, you know, way to market to their customers, the newest way to get someone to buy more clothes. (laughs) And I just, that was the frustration for me when I wrote that sentence. Um, But for me, what decolonization of the industry really looks like Co creative futures, to be honest. So, I think when we decolonize the industry, the, the, the colonizer can't be the decolonizer. It just doesn't work that way. So, because the dominant Western culture has been the colonizing force, it can't also be the force that decolonizes the industry. So, in order for decolonization to happen, we actually have to have, we actually have to allow space at the table. And I and I don't mean tokenistic space where someone sits at the table and watches those at the head continue on as they were. And there's this tokenistic space, but we actually need to, as the dominant culture, sit down, shut the fuck up and listen, to be honest. So I think it's It's co-creative futures, it's allowing space at the table and actually giving, handing the mic over to to other cultural viewpoints, other value viewpoints, and, and really having... It's really coming back to diversifying that space, diversifying the voices that are at the table. I think a lot of it looks like localized solutions, still having a global perspective, but localized solutions in terms of when we bring things back to... The place where we are, when we bring things back to our immediate vicinity, or we're willing to go to where, I guess, where our supply chains are and and have intimate relationships there with the people and the earth that's there, if that's what we're willing to do. When we have kind of that localized perspective, where we understand the ramifications of the, f- the fiber choices that we're making, the dyes that we're using, um, the people within our supply chain, and we have those intimate relationships with all, all of those facets of our supply chain, I feel like that's a huge step in decolonizing the industry because colonialism allows you to... It's all about hierarchy. It's all about the... The dominant culture being the accepted, best, most progressive way of doing things and everyone else as being, you know, backwards or not as progressive or, you know, needing handouts and needing help and the dominant culture is here to save them. That's another thing that happens. So I think. When we have those intimate relationships and we know the spaces with which are, and obviously it's not possible for everyone, but I think a move towards that is a huge step because when we have intimate relationships with the land and with the people and with our non-human kin who are affected by what we create, those relationships profoundly inform how we Create and how we design and how we think through the process and the, the life cycle of a garment. And all of those things are are informed by those relationships. I think um, a huge part of decolonizing the space is culture-led solutions. For me, that's really huge. And it's a question that I'm constantly asking myself. I'm half indigenous Maori, and our culture just naturally like the values of our culture surround um, Kaiti Akitanga, which is protecting the earth and being good stewards of our earth mother, our sky father, and the natural world around us. And these notions that these are our kin. And so for me, I'm asking myself constantly, how can I bring my culture to the table? How can I allow... And this comes back to that point that I made before about linguistic and cultural diversity being tied to biological diversity. So how can I allow my culture to lead here and how can I allow my culture to inform, you know, how I would do things if I didn't quote unquote know how it was supposed to be done? So for me, that's a really huge part of the puzzle. It's a question that I'm constantly asking myself. And, you know, I think because the dominant culture's way of doing things has been accepted for so long, we've passed over and missed out on so many brilliant alternatives and brilliant ways of thinking and um, contributions that could have really, and still can, really have huge impacts on how we move forward. But I think often when we talk about decolonization, people think that it's, Like, this is the response I get from a lot of people is like, oh, yeah, but, you know, we don't we don't want to return to the past. And, you know, um, we can't live in grass huts and wear grass skirts anymore. And that's not what it's about. It's not about it's not about making our Western culture wrong absolutely not there's so much we can offer there is so much that we as the as a western culture and society can offer in terms of technological solutions and so many brilliant minds but it's simply about equality and for a lot of people when oftentimes when you have been a part of the dominant culture equality kind of feels like being the underdog because it mean because you're being brought up onto an even playing field and we have to, like you said, acknowledge that we benefit from this system. We benefit from these ways of um yeah, we just benefit from it. And so I, I think it's not about making our Western way of doing things wrong. It's about collaboratively and co-creatively creating new futures and alternative projections for the future that allow everyone to be included and acknowledge that cultural diversity is a huge part of that and acknowledge that so many people have been left out of the conversation and those people who have been left out of the conversation have often been those who have been most affected by our actions. I don't know if that answers your question.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Thank you for sharing all of that and for really giving us kind of a full spectrum um, definition of what decolonization is, because I think, it, yeah, like you said, there is, um, there is a lot of misunderstanding about what this means. And, um, a lot of people do get quite rifled up because they do think it is about going back. And also, you know, um, that it, it, uh, some people think, you know, it might mean that even that, um, you know, white Europeans must now be punished for what they've done and, things like that, but it's, you know, it's completely not the case. It's about moving forward, um, with that awareness, um, but also bringing those other voices, um, to leadership positions I'd even like to add. Mm, Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Um, And I think a lot of people are really uncomfortable with the conversation because for a lot of people bringing this up and acknowledging that we operate within this kind of colonial system, a lot of people are like, but I'm not racist. I don't, you know, I don't share these same value systems. And and that's that's not what we're saying here. It's it's about acknowledging the truth of a past or the truth of a present. And and I think in acknowledging that and acknowledging all the ways we've benefited from this system, we allow space for a healing to take place, but B transformation to take place. And and yeah, it it is a hard one to talk about and I acknowledge that this is an uncomfortable conversation. It's uncomfortable for me even and I feel like I mean I I come from both the colonizer and the and the and the colonized. I mean, these two bloodlines meet in my veins and I'm constantly trying to reconcile the two of them within myself. So, I understand how this conversation is messy, but just because it's messy and uncomfortable doesn't mean that we should shy away from it or push it under the table because I think it's so important to acknowledge this and have these conversations
0: now. So, yeah. Mm, Absolutely. It's so imperative. Um, and that it's done in a reverent, an equal, um, reciprocal way as well. I think is important that we're not just perpetuating more colonialism through trying to decolonize, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and that comes back to <laughs> that comes back to what I said about the the colonizer not being able to be the decolonizer. That that comes back to allowing that process to be led by people who have been left out of the conversation so far. I think that's such a vital, important part of it because. You can't have you can't have that perspective. I think when you are a part of the mainstream culture and that's what you've grown up with, in and that's what you know, and there is nothing wrong with that. But you just can't have the the perspective on other cultures, um, values or ways of thinking because it's not your own, and that's perfectly okay. But that means that we have to allow other cultures and other minority groups to lead the conversation and to be at the table and not just be consulted which really pissed me off, (laughs) you know, when, when companies consult with, with, there's a, there's a huge difference between consulting other cultures or, or other, other groups, um, for their perspective and actually offering a seat at the table and you sitting down, this is all obviously just, um, a hypothetical. It's not you as in you, the individual person, but us as a collective sitting down and allowing others to have, to
0: take the lead. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important. And I guess, um, what you just mentioned there kind of leads on to this idea and this missionary complex that you talk about in your article. Um, can you speak to this a little bit? Because I know as a as a as a white woman with a European background and someone who has a huge passion for creating good in the world, um, I I know I've personally fallen into this trap of this missionary complex um concept and i think it's easy to do but it's so important that we need we need to be aware that we aren't doing it could you speak a little bit to that sure uh, and i uh, and to a degree
1: to acknowledge what you said i think that as humans we we like to be able to offer solutions we like to be able to go in and help people that's a natural human response so i think to a degree it is natural to want to do that but when we're talking about a missionary complex every time you see colonizers go into a country the missionaries always follow um and this is this holds true for i think the majority of of um You know, colonized countries that you look at certainly holds true for New Zealand and my own kind of heritage when I look back. And these missionaries will go into a country, assert themselves as the knowledgeable, I guess, body that's there to save the savages, or <laughs> you know, the backwards people, from themselves, and um, they know what they need, and you know, they know their needs best, and so they're going to come in and save them. And it's a it's a harsh comparison to make, but I, I think also a necessary one. And I I think that article was a bit harsh, but it was intentionally so. In that, I really didn't want to sugarcoat anything. I wanted us to look at look at things with a bit of perspective. So. I think what I meant by a missionary complex is when we see brands going in to spaces and trying to, so, trying to solve ecological crises or trying to solve ethical um, problems within, you know, industry by creating a brand and we see this happen so often. I have seen so many well-intentioned brands that have gone in and made their jute handbags and their, you know, aprons and um, shift dresses and things like that. And, and the purpose wasn't to design something beautiful. The purpose wasn't to create, to co-create a beautifully you know, a beautiful offering of clothing or, or other products. The purpose was simply to go in and save a people. It was like, oh, well, we see a need here. And I understand this. I mean, it's not to belittle anyone, but it's like, we see a need here. Okay, here's how we'll solve it. And oftentimes when, when it is a missionary complex, when it is um, being approached in that way, there's very little consultation with the peoples who are being affected. It's, almost always like, Oh, we see your problem. Here's what you need. And I can, I can speak about this with intimate knowledge because I grew up within humanitarian aid work. I grew up with a lot of missionaries. So I have seen this take place so many times. And I have, I, you know, I have intimate knowledge of what this looks like on the ground. And so often it lacks, it lacks you know, any meaningful communications with peoples being involved in the quote unquote um, saving of themselves. And even further from that, it it doesn't put um, the peoples being uh, affected in positions of leadership. It isn't co-creative in any way. And I I think we can see, I think if we are really honest, we can look at and see that there are a lot of brands who participate in this. And I understand the intentions were to help and to do something meaningful. And I think that's really beautiful. But I think it's important to acknowledge all the times we do this and that when we are doing this, it's more about us than it is about the people we're quote unquote helping because because it's about us feeling like we're fulfilled in our work, like we're doing something impactful, like we're having a mark on the world. And it's not so much about those who are who were quote unquote helping, because if it was, they would be placed in positions of leadership. They would be a part of a co creative part of this whole process. And there is a huge difference because there are so many brands out there Maybe not so many, but there are, there are brands out there for sure who we can look to and and identify who are who um, go into places where there are minority groups or where there are underprivileged women or um, people groups, and they work with them in co-creative processes, and they have community together, and everyone within that system is mutually benefiting from it. You look at, I I like Zazie as an example, because I think the way that Jean has created community with the women and the way that it is such a co-creative process is really um, powerful to look at, but it's very different from when when brands are going in just to, just to save people. Uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I think there's really a lot we need to be consistently checking ourselves on um, because, as you know, there's a lot of layers and conditioning on how we've been taught to do things and, you know, the intentions are, I think, pure and sincere a lot of the time but they're actually not really helping in, in the grand scheme of things and especially if we want to move towards paradigm and systems change. Mm and the the intentions are pure it's,
1: I think I absolutely agree with that but I think that um when we're so used to doing things a certain way and when there isn't cultural diversity as a um kind of as as when there's not alternative viewpoints there our viewpoint is never questioned and so when we go into spaces and we're going in with our great intentions, we don't have that perspective because we've never been questioned. We've never actually had the perspective of somebody who perhaps has been on the other side, on the receiving end of our our good deeds or whatever. Um, and, and I think that perspective is hard to come to because it is really, it's it's, it's very difficult to be blatantly honest with yourself in situations like that but again it's not a reason not to do it it's not a reason not to question ourselves and as we allow there to be space at the table for more diversity we we automatically are exposed to other worldviews and other ways of thinking and other perspectives that give us a kind of give us some context to the way that we think and um, give us alternative ways of viewing How we take actions, and how those actions affect other people. I think.
0: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I guess leading on from that, um, and you have given us a few ideas, but could you perhaps um, speak to this idea? Perhaps, yeah, from from your personal perspective. What though? Perhaps also within a design context. What can those of us who are not, you know, from these minority groups that, um, and are in the West and are within these sustainability and design spaces and are really wanting to create more inclusivity and diversity, you know, what can we do to actually create space at the table for more diverse voices of self-representation and to ensure that we're not further perpetuating colonialism? Mm. That's such a good question. Um, and I think first and
1: foremost, the most obvious one is <laughs> within the design space, we could stop appropriating other cultures. I think that's so huge. And I've seen a, a few big brands recently who have, uh, you know, appropriated other cultures, um, motifs and um you know, traditional garments and things like that. And um, in in really, from my perspective, horrific ways that were very dishonoring to those cultures. But they've gone in and said, you know, that wasn't our intention. We've had consultants, we, we've consulted with people from those cultures and it was, our intention was to kind of um, show off these cultures and to highlight them and to, um, you know, show how beautiful they are but but again that comes down to perspective having perspective and realizing that when you take from another culture that hurts that culture and and when you're involved in a taking that's not giving and it's not a reciprocal process it's just straight up wrong it's just straight up stealing so first and foremost we can stop appropriating other cultures and yes, it's beautiful to be um inspired by other cultures and informed by other cultures, but there has to be far far more than one sit down consultancy meeting happening in order for that to be done in a respectful and um honoring way uh and that's currently not happening happening most of the time so that's the I guess that's the first <laughs> first point um, uh and I guess when we go beyond our actual designs, it is again, about creating space at the table. So wherever possible, when we're speaking about ideas, especially as researchers or academics, or, um, you know, even if we're at, um, different conferences and things like that, when speaking about ideas that have originated with other cultures, allow them to lead the discussion. It's not that there's a lack of indigenous scholars or people speaking about there's not that there's a lack of other cultures who are able to represent themselves um with you know there's not a lack of people out there to represent their cultures it's just that we have we we don't really have the desire to put them in in places of leadership or to highlight their work so i think that's a huge huge part of it is allowing the discussion to be led by others humility is a huge part of it I think it can be really challenging at a time like this uh, where it's really natural to want to have our voices heard. It's really natural. It's a really human thing to want to feel as though we're participating in meaningful work, but there's a time to speak and there's a time to listen. And at the moment, I, I feel like the discussion around sustainability is predominantly a, uh, I'm going to say white, but that, but I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just predominantly white, for lack of a better word. And there needs to be so much more color at the table. So I think it is about really making space at the table, co-creating futures together, allowing others to have a, a, a place to share their perspective and their voice. And not in not in a tokenistic way, but in, in a genuinely, we're sitting down, we want to learn, we want to listen, we want to have more inclusive spaces, we want to change the way things are done within the system, uh, and that requires us to listen a bit.
0: Wow, those are all such beautiful, beautiful points that I think all of us can really take a lot from and really be integrating that into anything that we do. Um, particularly this listening aspect, which I feel not many of us are good at. Mm, so thank you for sharing those with us, Amy. You're welcome. So I think we're coming to the end of our interview, but I'd like to just leave some space for you if you'd like to add anything in or... Um, let the listeners know anything sure before we finish off for today um i think the
1: the thing that i'd like to leave everyone with is that being willing to have these conversations is a really powerful act a powerful step towards a more fair and more sustainable and more um, inclusive future for all so i i think it's just acknowledging that it's not the easiest thing to do but as we take those steps towards recognizing the value in each other's differences, different ways of seeing things and the world, and not making each other wrong, but just realizing that truths can coexist. And they can, be, they can be different from each other. They can even clash with each other, but they can coexist at the same time. And I think that's really important to acknowledge as we invite each other to the table as equals. And we have these conversations is that it's not about making anyone wrong. It's about different. It's about having a diversity of views at the table.
0: So that's what I like to leave us with. Oh, that's absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much, Amy, for having this conversation with me today. And I don't know about everyone else, but I have learned a whole lot and it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. All right, everyone. So that's another podcast down. We're going to put all the show notes, or going to put all the links in the show notes below, everything we mentioned. And Hope you enjoyed the podcast today and we'll see you on the next one. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation.
1: For today's show notes, to get in touch or sign up to our mailing list, you can find links at the bottom of this episode page.
0: And if you are new to our community, then head on over to our Instagram at sustainability5.0 and our website www.sustainability5.com and follow along to stay up to date with our upcoming online and in-person events.
1: If you found value in today's conversation, then we would so appreciate it if you would subscribe and leave us a review. Through this, you're helping others to find these important conversations.
0: Have a beautiful and wonderful week, everyone. Bye-bye.